What's up, everybody? My name is Dimitri Kafinas, and you're listening to Hidden Forces, a podcast that inspires investors, entrepreneurs, and everyday citizens to challenge consensus narratives and to learn how to think critically about the systems of power shaping our world. My guest in this episode is Marshall Kozlov, the co-host of The Realignment, a podcast that I absolutely love and which consistently produces some of the best conversations at the intersection of politics, society, and culture that you will find anywhere. It's Marshall's second time on the podcast. He was last on with his co-host, Sagar and Jetty, and I invited him on again because I wanted to talk to him about the recent midterms, as well as Trump's announcement last week that he's officially running for president in 2024, and what all of that means and says about the country, about what we can expect the next few years to look like, etc. And of course, whenever you talk with somebody like Marshall, who has such a deep intellectual curiosity and such a principled way of thinking through problems in a very public way, you can very easily end up in places that you hadn't really prepared for or that you imagined you would end up in at the beginning of the conversation, which is why I love talking with Marshall and which is exactly what happened in this conversation. So while this episode begins with us talking about politics in a more or less conventional sense, it deviates pretty substantially in the second hour to a conversation about the weird politics of the Ukraine war, as well as what I think of as a, this kind of ubermensch embracing transhumanist culture in tech that isn't really well understood, but which I think actually carries a lot of significance for both U.S. domestic and foreign policy. If you want access to that part of the conversation and you're not already subscribed to Hidden Forces, you can join our premium feed by going to hiddenforces.io slash subscribe and sign up to one of our three content tiers. Everyone gets access to the premium feed, which you can listen to on your phone using your favorite podcast app, just like you're listening to this episode right now. If you want access to our Hidden Forces Genius community, which includes Q&A calls with guests, access to special research and analysis, discounts, in-person events, and dinners. You can learn more about that on our subscriber page. And if you still have questions, feel free to send me an email at info at hiddenforces.io. And with that, please enjoy this incredibly interesting conversation with my guest, Marshall Kozlov. Marshall Kozlov, welcome to Hidden Forces. Great to be back. It's great having you on, man. I was thinking when I got on that speaking to a fellow podcaster feels kind of like flying with a fellow pilot. You know, it's like, oh, we're just going to put on our equipment here, just to double check that. You know, it's like, it's a completely different experience and it feels so much less stressful, you know? Yes, 100%. I offer up to do my local recording. It's pretty straightforward. I'll email you afterwards. So uh, glad that we can just do that. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, thanks for coming on, man. The audience knows from our previous recording together, you came on here once before with Sagar and Jetty, your co-host at The Realignment, that I'm a huge fan of what you guys do there. You guys are prolific. You're prolific at putting out interesting conversations at the intersection of politics, society, and culture, really at the very top of the field. And I, I've always really, really appreciated, like I genuinely mean that, you know, like hosts have other people on their show all the time. They're like, I really appreciate you. And I do that too. And, I, and I'm not bullshitting when I say that to other people either, 
But like, man, do I not really appreciate you? I love how geeky you are too, as a human being. I really do. Of course. (laughs) So I invited you on the podcast today, Marshall, because you guys cover politics. I don't. And I wanted to devote at least one episode to talking about the midterms, their significance, what they say about where the voters are today, the issues that matter for Americans, et cetera. And I also wanted to talk about Trump and where the Trump movement is in light of the fact that he recently announced that he's officially running for president in 2024. And what does that really mean for the country, for the types of cultural conversations that we're going to be having, et cetera? You guys did a a Breaking Points episode recently. Breaking Points is Sagar and Crystal's program. And you guys covered the, the results of the midterms in real time. So at the very top, what I would love is for you to catch me and the audience up on what happened and what is the significance of what happened in the midterms so that we can all kind of get past the BS headline stuff and begin to dig into what matters, what this year was in American politics and its significance for the next two years. Yeah, that's a great place to start. So number one, expectation was Republicans are going to have a big headline stuff and start to dig into what matters for people to understand about what happened this year in American politics. Yeah, that's a great place to start. So number one, expectation was Republicans are going to have a big red wave, as it was called, election. You had inflation, energy prices, the general issue with the economy, quasi-recession, all those ingredients, and also the obvious point that Joe Biden was under 50 in the polls, and the whole, are you happy with the direction your country is going question was very much trending away from the status quo. All those ingredients together should have meant that Democrats were going to get walloped. Instead, they weren't. Republicans barely, barely took the House when they were expected to win by dozens and dozens of seats. And Democrats actually most likely so, especially given the runoff in Georgia, which is probably going to favor the incumbent Senator Warnock, actually increase the representation in the Senate. That does not sync at all with this red wave argument. So instead, what we saw happen was A, Democrats actually won independent voters, really critical, unexpected. But two, and this leads to your point about how culture is really at the center of things, actually the abortion Dobbs issue was very, very, very decisive in a bunch of different states than one would have expected it to. And then secondly, and this is something I'm sure you and I will talk about, but when we're in this independent media space, this is where I have to own my own mea culpas. If you're in the independent media space, you have an incentive just to say, okay, look, whatever MSNBC and CNN and PBS, whatever they're covering, it's just wrong. I spent a lot of time on the podcast poo-pooing this democracy is at stake election rhetoric. Separate from the pure policy diagnosis, because I think that Stop the Steal candidates, election deniers, folks who are threatening to actually put the 2024 election up for grabs, like the gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, that was terrible. But I was like, that just isn't going to be a winning political argument. It was. It genuinely was. Like Stop the Steal candidates went down in flames. Doug Mastriano appears to have brought down the entire Pennsylvania GOP based on his election extremism. Carrie Lake, surprisingly, who was supposed to be like one of those people were talking about her seriously as Trump's 
VP in 2024, she lost. Election denial played a huge role in that. So I think that's a good check on independent media. It turns out, and you say it and it's obvious, we can be just as out of touch of how the electorate was feeling about things than the mainstream media can be. Yeah, fascinating. That was actually one of my questions. Did anyone try and dispute the actual election results this time around? Not really. So the difference is, as I understand it, Carrie Lake has not conceded yet. And then obviously you have candidates like Joe Kent from Washington Third, former Green Beret, who was a very, very, very extremely MAGA candidate who actually appears to have lost his primary. He hasn't conceded yet, but that's more of an artifact of the election results coming slowly. And it's more of an artifact of, okay, hey, like we're going to have a recount, count every vote. That is far different than the stop to steal extremism. Because both parties have engaged in, okay, like we're going to wait for the final count. Don't let the media call us and have it be over. That's fine. That's normal. I mean, it's not great, but it's fine enough. Stop the stealing. It really did just fall apart. How much traction has the Stop the Steal movement gotten? And does it still have widespread acceptance among a big chunk of the GOP base? Yeah, great question. So look, basic polling indicates that a huge percentage of Republicans, I'm not going to give the exact one because I don't have the number off the top of my head, by various election denial, stop the steal arguments. At the same time, not to be in pure defensive like voters, like we live in, an, you know, and this is something you definitely cover in areas outside of politics, we live in an anti-institutional age. So I just would not be shocked that there are obviously increasing numbers of people who would say like, okay, like we have these new mail-in ballots and okay, like why exactly did it take X amount of time to actually count all those ballots and wait, why is it election month instead of election day? I entirely understand how in a completely non-harmful way, there are legitimate questions to be asked around those facts. And oftentimes those legitimate questions, especially in polls, can code as election denial. So that's real. Here is where this becomes like a serious real issue. There was a large number of Republican candidates in state legislatures and governor's offices who explicitly stated they would not accept election results. That Carrie Lake said she wouldn't accept a result if she didn't win, which it's unfashionable to talk about norms and, you know, we have to follow our norms and our values, but that's actually a mm. fundamental innovation of the United States, right? The idea that you accept when your opponent wins, instead of going to the barricades and starting a civil war over control over the military. So that's actually a deeply important idea. But then too, you had Doug Mastriano openly talking about how a huge aim of his candidacy would be to prevent the 2024 election being stolen, which operationally met given the influence that the governor of Pennsylvania specifically has over the races, secretary of state, and the actual electors who go on to select that could be a really tight issue in a very tight election. So that's where it deeply mattered. So that's where you could also answer this another way. You know this is real when there were a surprisingly large number of election denial candidates who were actually nominated. If this wasn't real, this would have just been in a normal position or not on the table. That's very interesting. So then why do you think more GOP candidates who lost didn't take the it was stolen line? Or is the number of candidates that have taken it, like Carrie Lake, for example, enough? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question. Because it didn't just, again, from my perspective, and I think I'm more representative of a broader segment of American society than you because you spend much more time looking into politics than most people do. So from my perspective, it felt like it really wasn't a big thing this time around. It didn't seem like it it bubbled to the surface. Now, maybe that's because I don't watch one particular, I don't watch any cable news, right? So, But maybe if I watched Fox News, I would see that. So I'm just curious to understand kind of what the perspective is there. Yeah. So two things. So one, you live in New York, right? I live in New York. Yeah. But we moved out of New York City. So yeah. we're not in New York City anymore. We're actually a part of the country that's probably more Republican than it is Democrat. But the thing is, this is why the New York thing matters. Look, like Lee Zeldin, he actually did pretty well as a Republican running in New York. He was the gubernatorial candidate. He wasn't running on election denial and stopping the steal. If you had the Republicans nominate a Doug Mastriano type, you would have heard about this issue. Like That's the way to think about this. This issue, and this is why my analysis of it not mattering was wrong, because I kind of took your perspective on it. It mattered where it mattered. So where Republicans nominated Stop the Steal candidates, this very much was up for grabs. And a majority of voters were clearly willing to, surprisingly for many, vote on that issue and abortion over the inflation issue, over crime, over the economy, over their dissatisfaction with the status quo. So that's the key thing I'd really understand there. So the other thing that I kind of picked up on is that there seemed to be a lot of either former Trump supporters or people who just supported Trump as just when he became president and just kind of came along for the ride that seemed to come out pretty strongly against him. I mean, I, I saw one person who I knew had already started to sour on Trump, which was what's her name? Who was that famous GOP woman? Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter. I remember she was on Bill Maher like some years ago and was super annoyed that Trump didn't build the wall, et cetera. But she really like dug into him after the Republicans lost. And I saw a number of other people who I remember being Trump supporters coming out and being like, this is no longer Trump's party. Let's get rid of this guy. Stuff like that. How pronounced is that? Tell me more about that. Like, What impact did this have on Trump's likability, the support for Trump among candidates? How do we parse that out? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So there's a couple of different things happening here. So yeah, to your point, Ann Coulter has always been shockingly anti-Trump, right? She was doing it. She had her like in Trump we trust book, basically towards the early part of his administration. But as early as 2018, she was pretty aggressively TO'd at Trump. But here's what's happening with especially elite and top-line figures turning against Trump. So A, other than January 6th, right, insurrection at the Capitol, Trump basically signals, and and, and I know people are going to object he wasn't being literal, but Trump is joking about his VP getting hanged. That was the low point for Trump. And that was, that was that's where the debate was like, oh, wow, like is Mitch McConnell, is the Republican Party going to support impeachment and basically take him off the table of that? That didn't happen. Trump doesn't lose his base. GOP politicians don't move forward with overreaching their base. Other than that moment, though, this is really the lowest moment of Trump's political strength to understand that. This is a Trump who is now... GOP lost the midterms in 2018. He lost the presidency in 2020. And MAGA often stopped the steel candidates who he gave the nomination effectively via his endorsements, ended up losing. Herschel Walker should not have been the candidate against Raphael Warnock in Georgia. 
Carrie Lake should not have been the gubernatorial candidate. Doug Mastriano should not have been the candidate. Dr. Oz should not have been the candidate. They are only the candidates because Trump endorsed them. So if you are a Republican, not even just establishment person, because that's kind of a pejorative today, but if you're just like a mainstream Republican whose desire in life is, okay, my job is to elect Republicans and advance the agenda we support, you'd say to yourself, wow, Trump is a terrible candidate for us. And especially when you combine that with the fact that Democrats actually increased their performance in the Senate and held the House losses almost to a minimum. Also, don't forget, Lauren Boebert almost lost her congressional seat, one of the more like aggressive MAGA candidates in a, in a decently moderate seat. You're thinking to yourself, oh, wow, there's a world where Joe Biden could win in 2024. We need to attack Trump now to make this argument just very clear because Ron DeSantis, Trump's competition, he ran by almost 20 points. He turned, like, obviously, Florida had started trending red before DeSantis. You know, Marco Rubio, senator from the state, did very, very well, too. But he completed the transformation from Florida from this purple, purple, purple state to a deep red state during his tenure. So you would see you being a party professional, like, say, like wow, like, if we're going to win, we need to pick Ron DeSantis. The problem that they are going to run into is that the Democratic Party's and the Republican parties, their bases are deeply different when it comes to what they're actually selecting in their candidates. So for example, I just explained this to Sagar in a recording we did. A, if you're looking at 2020, and if you're not a Democratic voter, so if you're an independent, if you're not a third, if you're a Republican, basically none of the result makes any sense. You had a energetic Bernie Sanders. You had, and once again, folks, put aside your personal opinions of these folks, Elizabeth Warren, Mayor Pete, Cory Booker, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, huge, 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 young, energetic, democratic field, like every race, every color, every creed, yet that resulted in the selection of Joe Biden. Makes no sense. Well, it makes sense when you realize the question that a Democratic Party primary voter was asking wasn't, who has a brand new vision for the party? Who's bringing in a new generation of leadership? Who is the most charismatic? Who would I personally want to get a beer with? It was literally who is the most electable against Trump. And that was Joe Biden. It always was Joe Biden. Joe Biden, being a talented politician, knew to focus his entire candidacy on just that question. However, Republican voters, if Republican voters were like Democratic voters, Trump will be finished right now because Trump is not looking very electable right now in comparison to Ron DeSantis. There's a bunch of serious arguments against Trump doing that, like to the point he's led effectively three election losses in a row. However, Republican Party voters are not voting based on who's going to win in 2024. And also, it's also affected the primary because a, a primary where you nominate Doug Mastriano, Carrie Lake, and Dr. Oz, and Herschel Walker is not a primary where you're asking yourself, Okay, put aside each of my exact personal preferences, who's actually going to win this seat and give us control of the Senate and the House and the governor's office? Is that also, though, because there's more grassroots politics at work in the Republican Party than there is in the Democratic Party, and that's where these candidates came from? That the institutional apparatus doesn't actually have the same power to push candidates? No, that's a good question, but I don't think it is because like, let's, let's remember something. Don't forget, Joe Biden basically did not get any of the major endorsements going into the 2020 primary. He famously did not get those New York Times endorsements that went to Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. He 
didn't really get an aggressive Obama endorsement, he actually won that grassroots vote. Like that's what South Carolina was. Like obviously after South Carolina, you had the Democratic Party like come together and Pete drops out and Amy Klobuchar drops out. Obama makes some calls. People say to that, like, oh, look at the Democratic Party. It's so top down. But that was actually really just an example of, okay, we just can't win. Therefore, we're going to engage in politics and drop out. The Democrats did what the Republicans just basically at a personal level, at a politician level, weren't able to do against Trump in 2015. So that's kind of like an ego thing. But no, the, the institutional Democratic Party did not want Joe Biden to be the nominee in 2020. Yeah, that didn't happen. So it's kind of weird to think about it that way because it doesn't, once again, it doesn't quite sink. You would think to yourself, well, Joe Biden was vice president. He was in the Senate for like 30, 40 years. He's got to be the choice of the actual elites, but that actually wasn't what happened. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I actually do want to talk about more about Joe Biden and the Democratic candidates. Let's rewind and go back to Trump. I watched Trump's announcement speech where he said that he was going to run in 2024. And then I saw that Jeb Bush's son tweeted out low energy Trump, something like that. And I thought, oh, that's actually, that's an astute observation. He was very low energy. He felt very flat. And I have always felt that Trump never really wanted to be president. That's how I felt in 2016. I felt the same way during the pandemic. I felt that had he really wanted to be president, had he really had an authoritarian instinct, a politically authoritarian instinct, not necessarily like a kind of signaling one. Yeah, sure. He likes to mansplain, et cetera, but actually like have that desire to hold on to power that he would have acted very differently. And so my instinct to this time around is that he also doesn't want to run. And I feel like the reason that he probably has decided to do it is for legal protection, that this is kind of like a Berlusconi type of thing, that he's running for president because it's the safest way to protect himself because he's dealing with so many legal challenges. And whatever, like FBI investigations, et cetera. How true is that? How Am I onto something there or am I completely off base? So I'm definitely stealing this take from someone. Apologies, because I can't remember who said it, but Trump doesn't want to run for president, but he definitely does want to be president. He enjoyed being president of the United States. I don't think he enjoys, especially now that he's even older than he was seven years ago, 2015, he doesn't enjoy running for it. I, oh, wait, 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 wait. I want you to hold that thought. I don't want you to forget what it is. But how do we know that he enjoyed being president? Wasn't it super stressful, full of meetings and shit to read that he didn't want to read and all the other BS? Like he just wanted to spend time on Twitter and keep watching television. Was the payoff of having people talk about him so much what actually made it, you know, net enjoyable for him? I mean, I'm I'm curious why you say that. Yeah, no. So we know that he enjoyed being president because I mean, folks, there's been a lot of like reporting on this question, like folks who like worked with him and know, like, no, he personally enjoyed it. But to your point, you got it actually that the nuanced reality here, because you say, wait, like he would enjoy doing what like Bill Clinton and George W. Bush would do. Like George W. Bush would be up super early. Obama would like wake up at six and like work out and be in the briefing room. You're right. Trump would not like that version of the presidency. But what Trump did is Trump just changed the presidency. So Trump famously like wouldn't really start his day until 11 a.m. in the morning. I did not know that. Yeah, you know he would he would he would like it started trending. It it didn't just start that way, but over time, like he just shaped the job to him. Like Trump famously wouldn't do the reading, so he actually would just folks eventually started just summing things up in like one page memos. 
So like that's kind of like the funny reality, which is that like he definitely doesn't like the Aaron Sorkin West Wing version of the presidency, but he had the ability through and it's kind of funny because on the one hand, you could say like through the fact that he didn't suffer consequences for it, but he did suffer consequences, he lost re-election. But at least with him, like his own party, there was no consequence for it. And you know, Sagar brings brings this up a lot. Like Trump in 2020, he won 10 million more votes than he won in 2016. So if you're a Trump, you're like, wait a second, to tell me I need to read all of these like briefing books and I have to like wake up early and I can't tweet and I can't watch cable news, but I actually performed better and I actually had more control over my party and vanquished my enemies, Paul Ryan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Jeff Flake, senator from Arizona. Why would I not just keep doing my thing? So that's the the weird calculus. He made the job work for him, which could be good career advice if you're in any sort of field where you want to work that out. Did you ever want to work in politics, either as a politician or as a staff member? Or have you worked as a staff member? Yeah, it's funny. I definitely, I thought I wanted to be a staff member, but actually, I, don't, I actually don't have like the personality for it. I mean, look, you know this, like I host a podcast, I'm like entrepreneurial. Sure. I don't fit well with, it's also the reason why I'm not working for yeah. a corporation right now. Like, and I'm not saying this pejoratively, it's just a personality thing. Like there's just like a hierarchy friendly mindset that you need when you work in politics at a staff level. And I just don't have that. But would you love to be somebody that was an advisor to the president that whenever the president needs you, he gave you a call and you'd be like, yes, sir, Mr. President, I'll be right there, sir, Mr. President. I'll be in the Oval Office. I would Listen, man, I would love to be in those rooms. I would suck up every piece of information. I mean, to me, the idea, I'm not saying I ever want to be president, all that politics stuff, no thank you. But the idea of like waking up, getting these briefings, having people whose job it is to inform you about the world all the time, like that is, what an incredible privilege. That to me is the job. And it's, I understand that there are lots of people that are very different and it doesn't surprise me that Trump doesn't find that interesting. But I mean, wow, I guess what I don't understand is why anyone would want that. So I guess, you know, from your answer, it sounds like you're saying even if there wasn't a legal advantage to being president, and I think you would agree there is, and that gives him some level of legal protection. In your mind, your opinion is he probably would still run for president because there's something else he gets out of it. Yeah. And to answer the side note of your question, because that's kind of interpreting it differently. No, look, if anyone from the White House was listening, I would love to like work in the White House, especially with foreign policy issues, like my actual area of like focus and expertise. But like that being said, like I was thinking more like your staff assistant, legislative correspondent, you're working in a Hill office. But no, like obviously I'm not so arrogant as to be like, look, I get an offer to like work in the West Wing. I would say no, no, I would obviously say yes to the West Wing. And then to your point around, you know, Trump, like Trump wants to win. Like Trump doesn't want to be a loser. So I think you you actually kind of answered your question in a useful way that I was kind of trying to get to, which is like, is there a there's a lot of like commingling variables here. So like, is there a dynamic of the legal advantages of not being, you know, able to be indicted maybe? Definitely. But like, he would be doing this regardless because the thought of him in his mind, just being this failed, if January 6th is the end of the Trump story, or if this 2022 midterms, the end of the Trump story, he couldn't bear that. Like, could you imagine? Just think of everything you know about Trump. This just couldn't be where, where it would end. Like, he, he definitely needs the redemption moment. Yeah. I had another question I wanted to ask you, though I don't know where it fits now, because it sounds like what you said earlier is that the popularity of the Trump platform, so to speak, and it's unclear to me exactly what the Trump platform is. Maybe we can talk about that. But the extent to which that 
exhibits success in electoral politics is really dependent on where in the country the candidates are running. Because my my question was going to be, is the problem really that the platform itself, to the extent that we can actually identify what that might be, because I actually, I don't even think there is a platform. Honestly, like Trump's so inconsistent. He says so many things that it, it does seem to me that he is such a singular candidate and that what makes him popular really is who he is. And that therefore I'm skeptical. I'm very hesitant. And, I, and Trump has surprised me time and again. I'm hesitant to declare him dead. And I don't know that, that you're necessarily saying that, but I'm hesitant to say, okay, look at these midterm results. Look at the the web, the red wave that wasn't. That was a ripple. And so this tells us something about the electability or popularity of Trump in 2024. And I just, I'm not sold on that yet. Yeah. I mean, to answer your question about like the Trump agenda, the Trump position on things, I like to, th- so there's a couple of different lenses that people should think about this through. Cause I think that's what your show does, but like give people some lenses to think through the world. So number one, look, there's a recurring history in American politics of outsiders Sometimes there are third parties. Sometimes they take over parties. So like Williams, Jennings, Bryan in 1896, like they run for office and they, through a third party means, basically force the established, one of the two parties to adopt their perspectives. So in 2015, Trump is able to run, despite talking about running for years before, because his personality perfectly fit the 2016 Republican primary, and then Hillary Clinton as his opponent. And as third parties often do, they have insights. 1896, where I think you could start this history, Williams, Jennings, Bryan, you know, we're not going to crucify, you know, mankind upon a cross of gold. Oh, America is industrializing. It's urbanizing. There are all these farmers out West whose whose lives are changing and the status quo isn't serving them. That ends up, you know, being sort of like the initial germs of progressivism within the Democratic Party, and that ends up becoming adopted. Trump. Trump has insights that are categorically simple, similar. Hey, like our relationship with China wasn't working. There's bipartisan agreement on this. Two, the Republican Party wasn't in favor of comprehensive immigration reform to the degree that people thought it was. Like there wasn't actually a broad base of the Republican Party who wanted to advance, you know, the legalization of undocumented immigrants. Three, the foreign policy establishment was not in tune of its voters. You know, the first, one of the first big fights that really showed the GOP was doomed against Trump in 2015 was when Trump was like, oh yeah, the Iraq war was a bad idea. It turned into a huge fight with Jeb Bush and he ended up beating Jeb on that count. When coming into 2015, Jeb Bush, Liz Cheney, Many people from their generational cohorts still thought it was acceptable or the winning position if you were to state that. The problem that Trump is running into is that all of those things I just described are actually useful insights, but I don't think he could perfectly articulate, but I think he in many ways at a feral instinct level understood, but also was biographically suited to really articulate. The problem for him is that A, most of the insights are like no longer novel. So like, for example, no one's defending the Iraq war anymore. But not always no one defending the Iraq war, but ever since Joe Biden withdrew from Afghanistan, we've just as a country moved on from the 20-year war on terror. So we're not even debating what happened in 2003 the same way we were in 2015. Two, there's no presumption that Republicans, Republicans, especially because they've been doing slightly better for Hispanic and, and, and Black voters, especially men, they no longer think, 
oh, wow, the only way that we could win in a changing America is by passing immigration reform. They don't believe that anymore. That's just the generic Republican perspective. So there's no Trump value add on that point. And then finally, when it comes to these issues of just like the base being separate, Trump basically breaking so many of his political opponents, the Paul Ryans, the Jeff Flakes, making it so there was no wing outside of him, it synced up the GOP's establishment's perspective with that perspective of the base. Therefore, there's nothing to actually exploit anymore. Like Ron DeSantis agrees with Trump, quote unquote, on those big questions. So it's really created a political problem for himself. I kind of find myself wondering, watching that speech and then seeing Ron DeSantis, I'm just thinking, okay, but other than owning the libs and getting vengeance on Trump's enemies for 2020, what purpose does a Trump presidency serve? given how strong DeSantis really, really performs. Now, I struggle to imagine DeSantis being that aggressive with that question, because the problem to my earlier point about the Republican Party not choosing based on electability is what I just kind of stated was an electability argument. And it's unclear the GOP base would respond well to that. So if Ron DeSantis like went around saying like, guys, like he's going to lose, you could see a world where the GOP base reacted negatively to that attack and said, oh, so you're just with the libs on this. Oh, you're just with the establishment on this. I'm going to go for Trump again. So it's just left both DeSantis and Trump in this weird state that I genuinely don't really see how you get out of this dilemma. Okay. First of all, again, I've written down a number of things. I just want to put a pin in the owning the libs thing because I think that touches on something that I really wanted to get to talk to you about, which is where are we in the culture war? But put a pin in that. I think it's a very important conversation. Something that struck me early on when you were talking, because I watched, I don't know if you watched Dave Chappelle's recent SNL opening. I didn't watch it, but I, I know about it, but I didn't watch okay. it. Okay. So he had a part where he talked about the uh, 2016 primary and when Donald Trump was on stage, or maybe it was the election of 2016 and he was with Hillary. Right. It was the general election. And it was that, that moment where like, He's like, the system is corrupt. And she's like, no, it's not, or whatever she had said. And he goes, I know it's corrupt because I use the laws to my advantage. And Dave Chappelle was like, oh, shit. And I think that was a reaction that so many people had in that moment. And then he went on and he continued to do that. He continued to attack the system in a way that no one had ever seen before. You know, like saying things like pulling back the curtain, you know, like I'm still... I still, when I remember that, I think that's going to remain a, like a powerful moment, one of the most powerful moments in political history of my lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. Of like my lived experience when I look back at my life. And what I was thinking about when you were talking was like, that was such a powerful hack. You know, that alone could have gotten him elected, right? That, that resonated with so many people. I don't quite understand. And let me make one more point. I don't know what kind of fundraising Trump required to become president, okay? Because I know that money is important in politics, but clearly a lot of what he was able to do and say is what got him elected, not necessarily the money he was able to raise. At least that's my working assumption. So I guess my question is, Marshall, given the fact that the voters are where they're at and populist candidates have a lot of appeal today, why is it that we haven't seen someone that's able to speak truth to power in the way that Trump was? but who's actually less corrupt, less dishonest, more willing to actually do what he says or to make positive changes for the country. Because I don't think this is just a subjective you know, befuddlement that I have here, which is like, oh, 
It's not, in other words, I don't think it's this thing where like, oh, I'm just some guy who doesn't like Trump. I think most Americans don't like that kind of stuff. Even I know people even that voted for Trump that wish he wasn't the way he was. So I guess what I'm asking is like, again, maybe this is like the stupid outsider naive question, but I just don't get it. I feel like the country's there. And this speaks to like, you know, the larger question of the realignment that you guys cover and try to work through. So I'm just curious, that question first, and then maybe to the larger question of the realignment, where are we in that? And then we can talk about owning the libs. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good insight and a good question. So several things. One, Trump is just such a big figure that by definition, he is going to blot out the sun. So you're asking like, why hasn't there been a candidate who took parts of that insight? Well, A, like Trump, because of 30 to 40 years in the public scene, had the credibility to make that corruption statement and not be laughed out of the room by the voters who cared. So like Michael Bloomberg couldn't just come on stage and say what Trump really described. And it's kind of funny. You actually had a bunch of billionaires run for the presidency on the Democratic side, thinking that this Trumpian outsider instinct would, would do well for them. It didn't work because, once again, the Democratic Party wasn't selecting quite on that basis. But then, too, DeSantis is kind of like the version of what you're describing here. DeSantis, and this isn't me jumping too far ahead to the owning the lib part, but DeSantis fights with the media. DeSantis signals, to your point, the the same affect that Trump signals. I'm an outsider. I don't like the system. The establishment doesn't like me. The problem is that on the Democratic side, like I'm not a I'm not a socialist. I'm not left. So I'm not just trying to like own on them like a at an economic policy level. But the problem on the Democratic side is that this kind of anti-establishment energy was directed into a dead end, which was just democratic socialism. So a Democrat like Bernie Sanders heard every single thing you just said. Oh, the system's corrupt. Oh, you know, the powerful have too much and we have to tear it down. They dedicated it into democratic socialism. This is the word that births AOC, but for a variety of reasons, especially the culture question that we'll get into in a bit, the the tie between, let's say, like left position on cultural issues, and then also just like the fact that socialism doesn't really like play well meant it was not going to go anywhere. So that's that's the actual answer. And the broad framework I take for the realignment is we're going to have a 2020s that feel deeply politically unproductive in the way that the 1970s, especially after Watergate and Vietnam, felt unproductive. But actually, we're kind of seeing the seeds of what will make the 2030s actually work in the way that the 1980s actually were able to quote unquote work. And one of the seeds we're kind of seeing here is, oh, wow, that status quo, that understanding of politics that really organized our post-Cold War 1992, 2015 world, that didn't work. The instant reactions to trying to build something new won't quite gel together because of a combination of talent, bad luck, and just like the people not really meeting it there. But hey, like someone's going to pick that up. Again, I wrote a bunch of things. The thing, the problem with talking with you, Marshall, is that you say one thing, I write down five things, and then maybe I say a couple things in the next question. So we're always adding on more things than we're getting through. So I confess to not really having watched any Ron DeSantis conversations or speeches, so I don't really know. And you can tell me if, if this is what you're talking about. I don't feel like what made Trump 
powerful in the way that I described was saying I'm an anti-establishment candidate. I think that that's, or saying the media lies to me. Like that's, the media lies. I feel like that's that's something we've seen many times, certainly the anti-establishment stuff. And we've seen presidents pick fights with the media in all sorts of ways. Yes, Trump was more viscerally animalistic in the way that he did it. But I think what I was speaking to was the rawness of the truth. I mean, like he spoke the deafening amounts of truth in some of those instances in ways that I think deeply resonate with people on a human level. Like people aren't used to seeing that. Yes, he did turn it into a spectacle, which I think aroused a huge chunk of the electorate, again, on a sort of animalistic basis. But on a human level, there was something incredibly compelling about his willingness to do that. And in that sense also, I think what made Trump unique was that he didn't give a shit. He didn't care about what Hillary Clinton thought of him, what the GOP establishment thought of him. He didn't seem to care. And I wonder if that's also part of the thing, which is that like most politicians really care and he didn't. But anyway, I don't know. Say your thoughts there. I don't want to drag that question out too much and then we can go further down the line because we're not going to get through this interview if we keep- Yeah, yeah, no. I'll, I'll, just, I'll give a, a just a quick short one. Look, I think you got at how Trump was different. A typical person who gets into politics doesn't have his combination of traits. They don't have his combination of traits with 30 to 40 years on television. And that's why he should be thought of as a once in a generation figure. All right. So um, when you were talking about Bernie Sanders and socialism and how that kind of insight manifested on the Democratic side versus the Republican side, I had an insight as well, which is my sense is that Democrats are largely institutionalists. They still believe in the institutions. They want to hold them together. And so the socialist response is not only do we want to hold them together, but we want to expand them. We want to fill them up and bolster them and strengthen them. Whereas it does seem like what's happened on the right is that that's where all the burn at the F down people are. Anyone who wants to burn down the system, I don't see any of those people on the left. I, don't, I mean, like there are some of those anarchists that you typically see in the US and Europe that kind of are leftist agitators, et cetera. That doesn't seem to be like a meaningful contingent unless I'm missing some important subreddit you know, on the internet. So like, do you agree with that? That that's really where the anti-institutional vote is, whether it is, because I know a lot of yoga, and I don't know them personally, but I heard these stories over and over again, yoga teachers, people in the new age community that have gone right for Trump. Yeah, this is a, a good way to put it. So the way that I would think about it is across both parties, there is a lack of satisfaction with the status quo. So I don't want to make it seem like Democrats are all a bunch of, you know, lemmings for like institutions. But the question is basically like, where do you see the solution to the broken status quo coming from? And if you are a Democrat, because Democrats are the party of government, obviously, if you're a Democrat and you don't like the status quo, you're going to say to yourself, okay, like who do we put in charge of things to make things actually work? If you're a Republican because of limited government and to your point, the anti-institutional perspective there, that's going to really trend that way. So that's a good way. And this is also, by the way, like a useful way of understanding how there have been a bunch of figures, especially on the internet, YouTube, left who've like trended very right. Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, Tulsi Gabbard, like this crew of people, like they are actually anti-institutionalists. And there's obviously a certain degree of grifting in these spaces, but- there is actually a pretty strong through line 
between where folks have gone and another realignment of the American political system since the you know early 2000s, like when I was just in elementary school, has been the real solidifying of the Democratic Party as the party of institutions, like you said. So it just means that if you're not in that category of person, you're by definition going to start trending. Now, when I say trending right, I don't mean conservative. I don't mean Republican. I mean like right wing as a valence. And anti-institutionalism has a right wing valence to it. What a wonderful way to put it. Absolutely. That's great. I love that. I love that. That's great. So another quick question. This actually takes us a little bit further back. And I wrote this down. I wrote Texas versus Florida. Because I also see an important cultural distinction between these two states whose demographics have also changed substantially during the last few years as a result of inflows from blue states. And yet the inflows from blue states in Florida have not made the state more democratic. If anything, it's made it more Republican. Whereas in Texas, it feels like the state has actually turned more blue as a result of the people that have come into Texas. I'm curious, one, is that correct? And two, I have my suspicions as to why it might be correct if it is. But two, why is that correct? Like, what are you seeing? Because you also made that move. Yeah. So I moved from Brooklyn to Texas a few months ago. Yeah. It's interesting. I think it comes down to, at a very basic level, skills within politics. So something that Florida GOP, the Florida GOP has just done an amazing job of just meeting the electorate where it is and giving it exactly what it wants. So Ron DeSantis goes for a you know 15-week abortion ban. He doesn't go, as for example, Blake Masters did, all the way to completely making abortion illegal in the state. The Florida GOP, and this is a good time for like Florida man jokes, the Florida GOP is kind of a little more libertarian in bent. Because of like the heavy presence of like the Cuban population, it just kind of has a very unique flavor to it that the state party and politicians within it has done a good job of really adjusting to. In Texas, I think the issue of Texas is I'm not quite, I mean, look, I haven't been there long enough to like perfectly understand this, like beyond just like the academic level. But for me, it just seems like the Texas GOP is just far more extreme than the Florida GOP is. And because the Florida GOP is in sync with the populace and able to win these really dominant victories, it just leads to an ex- the example that you're seeing. The Texas GOP in the next few years is going to run into that status quo problem in that if you don't like the status quo in Texas, the party so dominates the state that eventually I think you're going to see voters start voting more Democratic, not because they're like left, not because they're progressives, blue Texas, but just because like hey, wait, Like we have all these problems of power in our state. The state has been under control by Republicans for 30 years. Let's vote for somebody else. That's a vulnerability that the Texas GOP is leaving itself open to. Fascinating. So what you're really saying is that the reason that uh, Texas has been leaning more blue or that has it moved in, in the opposite direction of where Florida seems to have moved is not actually an indication of where the electorate's at, as much as an indication of just how far out of sync the GOP in Texas is from where the right-leaning, potentially right-leaning voters actually are in Texas. Yeah. Something that's interesting about Texas, and Austin in particular, is that it seems to have this unique intellectual flourishing that you don't really see anywhere else in the country, at least not in like a, a big city. Now, that's where I think you moved, right, Austin? Yeah. It seems like there is this kind of interesting intersection of 
of people in what we talk when you're, again, this whole conversation about the realignment. Do you feel like a lot of the kind of stuff that you're focused on and the conversations that you have, the stuff that you're interested in, people in Austin, Texas are more disproportionately interested in as well, that it kind of is this cultural milieu of stuff related to the realignment? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think the way I would think about it is because Texas is a very red state or purple red state, but Austin is like a very liberal place. It means that if you're in Austin, you're inherently kind of going to have to be an outsider of whatever that status quo is there. So I think places that are outside the status quo by definition are going to attract people. And also it also helps that it's a university town. Like I think UT plays a huge role in that environment. I think in Austin without UT would not quite have like quite that same affect there. But yeah, I, I think that any position that's kind of out of the mainstream is going to play a big role there. So I'm going to move us to the second hour, Marshall. And I want to pick up with what you talked about with respect to the 1970s, transition to the 1980s, and where we are in the 2020s and where they transition to the 2030s, because that isn't intuitively obvious to me. And I have some pushback for you there, and I want to see where, where it might go. I also would love, if we have a chance, to talk about some of those people you mentioned, Tulsi Gabbard, Glenn Greenwald, and Matt Taibbi. Because Tulsi is very new to me in the sense that like she only came on my radar in the last four years or whatever, six years, I don't know what. But I've followed and read Glenn for years, years. And man, has he changed. Matt always was kind of a, a flamingo kind of character. He'd always kind of been a unique character. But Glenn... Glenn has changed quite a bit, and I uh, I am curious to hear your thoughts about Glenn. I have, I have some questions there because I, I I still don't quite understand what really drives Glenn and what role he plays in all of this. We mentioned earlier owning the libs. That's something else I want to talk about. I want to talk about the culture war and really how much of it is in the rearview mirror at this point and how much of it we're still going through it because it feels like a lot of that stuff, a lot of the, quote, intellectual dark web conversations that people were obsessed about, the Ben Shapiro's the uh, Brett Weinsteins, all those folks, the Jordan Petersons, that feels like that had a big moment there and it's kind of fizzled out a bit. And I'm just curious, are we kind of over that or are we going to have, do you think we're going to see a resurgence in that? And I got, again, we're going to run out of time before we run out of questions, Marshall. For anyone who is new to the program, Hidden Forces is listener supported. We don't accept advertisers or commercial sponsors. The entire show is funded from top to bottom by listeners like you. If you want access to the second hour of today's conversation with Marshall, as well as the episode transcripts and intelligence reports, head over to hiddenforces.io and check out our episode library. We can also become a premium subscriber today. Marshall, stick around, man. We're going to move the second hour of our conversation onto the premium feed. For more information about this week's episode, or if you want easy access to related programming, visit our website at hiddenforces.io and subscribe to our free email list. If you want access to full episodes, transcripts, and intelligence reports, which include additional notes, resources, links, and other material that will help you get the most out of each and every episode, check out our premium subscription available through the Hidden Forces website at hiddenforces.io slash subscribe. Today's episode was produced by me and edited by Stylianos Nicolaou, for more episodes, you can check out our website at hiddenforces.io. Join the conversation on Twitter at Hidden Forces Pod, or send me an email at info at hiddenforces.io. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>